Well, I invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11 this morning. Mark 14. And it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. But there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this passage in Mark 14, that you would give us understanding by your spirit, but that you would also give us hearts that are receptive to your truth. That we would be hungry and thirsty for living water and for food from heaven. So Lord, please speak to us, accomplish your purposes. We hold to your promise that your word will not return void. And we pray that here this morning, Christ would be exalted in our midst in that we, Lord, would be edified by your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, growing up, um, my parents wanted to instill in me the importance of going to church and worshiping with God's people. Nothing, nothing was allowed to be used as an excuse for not going to church. The only thing that was justified was severe sickness. Other than that, I was going to church with my family. Homework was not an excuse. A friend's birthday party on Sunday was not an excuse. There was no excuse for missing church on Sunday except sickness. I played a lot of competitive sports growing up. And every time I made a team, my dad had to sit down with the coach and explain to him that Peter would not miss church on Sunday for any sport. And so there had to be an agreement between my dad and the coach that, that Peter was allowed to miss hockey games on Sunday. 
Now, there was one Sunday, however, where we were in a hockey tournament and we made it to the finals. And I, and I don't mean this arrogantly, but just that team that I was on, I was the best player. And, um, and uh, I, I was. <laughs> but um, uh, so we made it to the final and we're in the dressing room and my coach comes in and he says, guys, the game is Sunday morning at 10 a.m. And my heart just sank because now I had to explain to all my teammates that I wasn't going to be at the game. And they were quite upset about that. But thankfully, my dad showed me some compassion. And at our church, we had two services, a 9 a.m. and an 11 a.m. And so what we did was I went to the first half hour of the 9 a.m. service. My brother drove me to the hockey game, played the game, and then I went back and heard the sermon at the second um, <laughs> service. So but that was an exception. Um, and we lost anyways, which was kind of a waste. But what was my father trying to instill in me? Because I didn't like that growing up, right? I wanted to play hockey on Sunday morning. I wanted to do other things on Sunday morning. But my dad, no matter what, would not let me go anywhere except to church. What was he trying to instill in me? Well, he was trying to instill and teach me that there is nothing more important than all, in all of life than the worship of Jesus. And he wanted to instill that habit in me so that when I was older... I would then instill that in my own children. And I am thankful that my dad instilled that in me. There is nothing more important than the worship of Jesus. And I think this passage teaches us that as well. We saw last week that Jesus gave his Olivet Discourse about the destruction of the temple and also his return in glory. And it's here in Mark 14 where there is a major transition in the narrative. We come now to the final days of Jesus' life. We now enter into the passion narrative, which will culminate in Jesus' death and resurrection. Now here in chapter 14, verses 1 to 11, there are several things that we see. I've, I, I've put all those things in your bulletin, the outline of this sermon. We see the, the evil plot of the religious leaders in verse 1 to 2. We see an unknown woman's act of love, the disdain of Jesus' disciples, Jesus' defense of the woman, Jesus' honoring of the woman, the evil betrayal of one of Christ's very own disciples. So first we see the evil plot of the religious leaders. We're told by Mark that it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is just days before Jesus' death. Remember, Jesus is going to be the Passover lamb. And Mark tells us the evil plot that was stirring amongst the religious leaders. They were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and have him killed. And the reason they were attempting to do this secretly was they knew that it would cause an uproar amongst the people. Now there's great irony here. The religious leaders and, and all of Israel are about to celebrate the most important event in their history. God delivering them out of Egypt represented in the Passover lamb the blood that was placed upon their doorposts as the angel of death overcame their homes. This was a worshipful, celebratory event worshiping God for his faithfulness and deliverance, yet these religious leaders are secretly attempting to arrest and murder the very one that the Passover was pointing to. 
They were claiming to worship God while secretly they were planning the murder of an innocent man. And not just an innocent man, but a righteous man. And of course, Judas is going to be the solution to their plans, as verse 10 to 11 indicate. Judas, one of Jesus' very own disciples, is going to be the instrument by which the religious leaders will arrest Jesus secretly. He's going to betray his Lord. Now, what I want us to see is that I don't think it's a coincidence that in between the religious leaders' evil intentions and Judas's betrayal for money resides a story of an unknown woman performing a beautiful act of sacrificial worship towards Jesus. The religious leader's evil scheming is driven by hatred towards Christ. Judas's betrayal is driven by his idolatrous love for money. And in between those two stories, there is a woman who is anointing Jesus, and she is driven by a sincere love and devotion towards him. The contrast is meant to be startling. In between these evil schemes resides a story of beautiful devotion to Christ. And that's what we see in verse 3 and on. We see an unknown woman's act of love. Look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. We're told that Jesus was in Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. And he was in the house of Simon the leper, reclining at his table. Now, we don't know much about Simon, but Luke actually tells us that he was a Pharisee. He was probably a Pharisee who followed Jesus. There were actually some of them. He was most likely a leper that Jesus had healed and restored. So Jesus is there with his disciples, and and we're told that a woman came with an alabaster flask of anointment of pure nard, which Mark tells us was very costly. Some of the disciples suggest in verse 5 that it could have been sold for 300 denarii, which was about a year's wages. This would have been a deeply treasured possession, most likely handed down from generation to generation. This would have been the most valuable thing this woman had owned. Now, Mark doesn't tell us who the woman is. Luke tells us she was a sinner, most likely a prostitute. John tells us that she was actually Mary Magdalene. Now, there is debate about whether each of these accounts are referring to the same event because each uh, passage describes things a little bit differently, but most likely they are the same event, but each are telling things from a different perspective. Nevertheless, in Mark's account, the woman is unknown. But she approaches Jesus while he was reclining at table. And she breaks the flask and pours out all the anointment over his head. Not just some of it, all of it. Which then would have flowed down his body. Luke tells us that she washed Jesus' feet with the ointment and her hair, even kissing his feet. In other words, the picture here is this. She has bathed Jesus in this expensive ointment. She took her most valuable possession and used it to anoint the one 
she loved. She, in this moment, is expressing her devotion and her genuine love for Jesus. And she does this by sacrificing her most treasured possession. This was an unknown woman's act of love. Yet surprisingly, this led to the disdain of some of Jesus' disciples. As we see in verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the anointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. This act of love and devotion towards Jesus is actually looked upon by some with scorn. They see this act that she's done as wasteful. It's a a poor use of resources. For if they had sold the ointment, they could have used the money to care for the poor. They could have used it to accomplish a greater good. It angered them so much that at the end of verse 5, they actually scolded her. Now, there's no doubt that some of them were sincere in their anger in that they really did want to serve the poor. They've been around Jesus long enough to know his heart for the poor and the outcasts. Of course, though, Judas was there, and John tells us he was one of the disciples who objected to this woman's act of devotion because he thought that this money could be used for the poor. But in reality, John tells us that Judas was a thief and loved money, and he would often have taken the money from the money bag. But no doubt, some of the disciples genuinely thought that this act by this woman was wasteful because money, because money could have been made and then given to the poor. And they, without a doubt, are convinced that Jesus agrees with them, especially since he has shown such compassion and care for the poor. So how does Jesus respond? Well, he comes to her defense. He defends this unknown woman because he sees things and understands things that they don't see or understand. Look at verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. He tells them, he rebukes them, leave her alone. Don't trouble her. And then he begins to explain to them how he observes what she has done. And the first thing he says is, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Do you see the contrast? They see her act as wasteful, foolish, a misuse of resources. Jesus sees her act as beautiful. Have you ever thought that when you truly worship Christ, He views your worship as beautiful. Now, why was her act beautiful in the eyes of Jesus? Well, I think there's several reasons. For one, it was sincere. This act flowed from her sincere heart towards Jesus. She loved and adored Christ, and it led her to act in a certain way towards him. Most likely because she had experienced his forgiveness, but also because he is worthy in and of of himself of such love and devotion. Jesus became her treasured possession, 
And she demonstrated that by giving her most treasured possession to him. Also, it was beautiful because it was sacrificial. She gave up that which was most valuable to her. Through the breaking of the flask, she was offering her whole self as a sacrifice in worship to Jesus. Listen to how Wynandi puts it. In breaking open her flask and pouring out her most treasured and expensive possession, she is portraying her complete love and wholehearted affection for Jesus and simultaneously offering him worshipful homage. In prayerful adoration, she is breaking open and offering her entire self to him. In sacrificing her ointment, she is lovingly offering herself as a sacrifice to Jesus and so devotedly ministering or reverently attending to the one she loves. This is the beautiful act she is performing. She, through her act, was offering sacrificial worship to the one she loved. It reminds me of Paul, Paul's words in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Thirdly, it was beautiful in the eyes of Jesus because she was unashamed in her worship. Think about it. The room was full of people, majority men, sitting down having a meal. And none of that prevents her from expressing her love and devotion to Christ. Can you imagine the courage it would have taken her to do this? This was an extremely intimate act that probably would have been made, that probably would have made everyone in that room feel a level of discomfort. Yet it didn't matter to her whatsoever. She doesn't care about how they may interpret her act. She doesn't look for their approval. It's as though she felt that she was alone with Jesus in the room. She cared nothing for the opinions of others. All she wanted in that moment was for Jesus to feel treasured by her and to be affirmed by him. She was unashamed in her worship of the one she loved. Would unashamed describe your worship of Christ? Or does embarrassed describe your worship of Christ? What will one think of me if I raise my hands? What what will one think of me if I get on my knees to pray? What will one think of me if I sing loud? What will one think of me if if I'm bold about my love for Jesus wherever I am? Of course, there are those who love to draw attention to themselves when they worship. That's not what I'm talking about here. But how many of us worship Christ unashamedly and with self-abandon? Her act of sincerity, sacrifice, unashamed worship was beautiful in the eyes of Christ. And so Jesus defends her by rebuking the disciples for scolding her and declaring that what they claim was a waste was in fact beautiful in his eyes. But he also gives further explanation in verse 7 to 8 for why they were thinking wrongly about her actions. And the first thing he tells them in response to their objection is, the poor you will always have, but not so of me. In other words, you're always going to have opportunity to do good to the poor because there will always be the poor. 
but I won't always be here. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is always with us. I am with you to the very end of the age, he told his disciples at the end of Matthew 28. But what Jesus is referring to here is being with them bodily, physically present with them. See, in these words, Jesus is implying that he's going to die, but that he's also going to ascend into heaven. And the reason her act of devotion was not a waste, nor a lack of care for the poor, was because I will not always be with you, but you will always have opportunity to do good to the poor. You see, the contrast is not between Jesus and the poor, but the always and not always. You will always have the poor. You will not always have me. Now, there's a few things that we need that need to be noted here. The first is this. It would be easy to think that Jesus is implying that caring for the poor isn't all that important. But that's not what he's saying. In fact, implied in his statement is the notion that his disciples will do good for them. As he says, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. We also know that Jesus and all of the scriptures have great emphasis in caring for the poor and downtrodden. For example, in Matthew 25, 37 to 40, where Jesus talks about his disciples who are serving the poor and caring for the outcasts and those in prison, Jesus equates those acts as acts done unto him. As he says, then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of least to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. James 1:27 also says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, that you believe in substitutionary atonement. No, it's not that. It's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, Jesus isn't diminishing our obligation in caring for the poor, but he is declaring that our devotion to him ought to be our greatest priority. And in our devotion to him, we ought to love and care, have care for the outcasts. But if our worship of him, but our, sorry, our worship of him must be the supreme purpose of our lives. It must be the underlying motive of all we do. You see, there are a lot of people who are passionate about caring for the poor, but they're completely indifferent to the worship of of Jesus. They would look upon this woman's act as wasteful because they're indifferent to the worship of Christ. You see, the disciples in this story, they were thinking purely in utilitarian terms. That is, they were solely thinking about function and all the good that could be accomplished with this ointment and how it could be used for the greatest good. Therefore, they saw her act as wasteful. They were thinking in a utilitarian mindset, and much of our modern society thinks the same way. We're obsessed with merely the function of something and how something can be a used to accomplish something. But the worship of Christ cannot be viewed 
through this lens. If one approaches the worship of Jesus with what can be accomplished, you're never going to see any real meaning or purpose in worship. Let me give you an example that that may help illustrate this. I'm going to use the example of architecture. If you've traveled Europe, at some point you've entered into one of those magnificent cathedrals. The high ceilings, the, the stained glass windows, the meticulous design and carvings. And whether you're religious or not, it's almost impossible to enter and not be moved in some way. There's a beauty and a transcendence that is hard to articulate. Now, I understand that that one can argue that much of that can be idolatrous, just like the Jews and their idolatry toward the temple. I get that. But let me say this. None of these cathedrals would exist if the only question that mattered was, How can this building be used? Or what can be accomplished through this building? If the function of the building was all that mattered, we wouldn't have cathedrals in our history. But there were more important things than just function that came into the equation. Things like transcendence, truth, goodness, and beauty. Things that pertain to worship. In other words, what the cathedral itself communicated about God mattered. What architecture communicates matters. See, why do you think modern modern architecture is so ugly in comparison to the architecture of the past? Because often function and how a building can be used is all that matters when it comes to modern architecture. Why are so many modern church buildings so ugly? Because quite often we're only thinking about how the building can be used. To think about possibly putting extra money out on a church building in order to communicate transcendence, that would be seen as wasteful in our modern context. You see, the disciples saw her act as wasteful because they were solely thinking about how this ointment could be used. Whereas Jesus saw her act as beautiful because the act was worship. Christ and the worship of Christ is the most important of all. They saw her act as wasteful because they thought about all the good that could be accomplished for the poor. But Jesus demonstrates that there's an even greater priority, and that is the worship and devotion of him. So Jesus explains to them that their thinking is wrong because the poor they will always have, but they will not always have him. The second thing he explains to them is that in what she has done, she has prophetically cared for Jesus. She has prophetically cared for Jesus. Whether she's fully understanding of what she has done is unknown. Most likely she didn't fully grasp the meaning of what she had done. But Jesus interprets her actions because he's the one who knows all things. And he interprets her actions as a prophetic act. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. This act was in preparation for his death and burial, whether she realized that or not. Her sacrificial act of love and devotion was in preparation for Jesus' sacrificial act of love and devotion towards sinners by dying for the sins of the world. And notice what Jesus says about her in the beginning of verse 8. 
She has done what she could. She has done what she could. That is, in her ministering to Jesus, she did all that she could. What she was capable of, all that she was able to do, she did. I think these words are so important. Because I think many of us don't do all that we can do in our service to Jesus. You're able to serve Christ by caring for a brother or sister. You're able to accomplish something for Jesus, but in the end you don't because it's inconvenient and demands sacrifice. You haven't done all that you can for Jesus. But I also think many of us take on unnecessary burdens because there are things we actually cannot do, yet we're being told, pressured, that we ought to, and when we don't, we feel a sense of guilt. We're more aware of the brokenness and, the many, and many of the injustices in our world in ways that our ancestors were not. Due to the internet and media, we have access to information so quickly. Like when, when a disaster happens across the world, we can literally find out within hours, even minutes. That's unheard of in human history. And because we know of so many more tragedies and injustices, sometimes there's this pressure to somehow demonstrate that we're all doing our part in helping those in tragedy and in fighting against evil. There's this pressure to be involved in every cultural issue and to be speaking out on every issue. And if you don't, it's clearly because you don't care. But friends... There's only so much that one can do. Even as a pastor, there can be this constant pressure from people who have certain expectations of what a pastor should be doing or not doing. Despite the fact that they probably haven't spent a day studying the scriptures, thinking about what is a pastor actually called to do. See, this passage here of this woman who who Jesus says she did all she could do, this passage encourages me to pray, Jesus, help me to do all that I can for you, no more and no less. Help me to know what my limits are. See, each of us have different capabilities and different limitations based upon our own life circumstances, based upon our own giftings and abilities. And you need to know what your limitations are and then live faithfully in serving Jesus within those limitations. Sometimes you have done all that you can do and it doesn't matter what others may think. All that matters is what Jesus thinks. You see, too often we compare our serving Jesus with what others have done or accomplished and you feel as though you haven't done enough. But friends, you're not called to do what others have done or accomplished. You're called to do all that you can do. Jesus doesn't expect us to do more than we can, but he does expect us to do all that we can. You see, this woman, based upon her circumstances, who she was, did what she could in serving Jesus. In her act of devotion, she gave to Jesus what she could. So Jesus has defended this woman, explained to the disciples why her act of devotion 
was a beautiful act and why it wasn't wasteful. He defends her, but also in verse 9, he honors this woman's devotion. He honors her. Look at verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. There's a simple principle here. Those who honor Christ, he will honor. Sometimes I think we as Christians tend to think that that God is is so consumed with his glory in, in not a way that's actually biblical that he won't share his glory. That he won't share honor. God delights to share honor with his children. Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 talks about how those who endure will actually be allowed to sit with him upon his throne. Christ honors those who honor him. We don't know this woman's name. Yet Jesus' words prove true. All throughout the world and down through the ages, men and women have heard this story and have been moved by this woman's devotion to Jesus. Jesus has honored her, and what she has been has and what she has done has been told in memory of her. Christ honors those who honor him. Christ exalts those who exalt him. Brothers and sisters, all your small acts of worship and service towards Jesus, every small act of worship and service towards Jesus, caring for a brother or sister, helping the poor, praying secretly in your closet, sharing your faith, worshiping with God's people, all these small acts of worship and service towards Jesus, though they will never be recognized by the world, they will be honored by Christ. For he is pleased with what you can do. Now, the last thing we see in this passage, which is such a contrast to the woman, is the betrayal of Judas, the evil betrayal of one of Christ's very own. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The contrast between Judas and this woman is powerful. And there is a warning here for us. Of course, this woman is being held up as the ideal for what a true worshiper of Jesus is. And Judas is being held up as what you don't want to be. Her act was a loving preparation for Jesus' burial. Judas' act was an unloving preparation for Jesus' burial. Now, of course, none of us think that we'll betray Jesus like Judas did. And in one sense, that's, one sense, that's true, right? We, we don't have the opportunity to hand Jesus over to his enemies. But we are all capable of forsaking Jesus like Judas did. That's not beyond our reach. You see, what was it that led Judas to betray Jesus? Was it the same hatred that the religious leaders had? Most likely not. He possibly had several motives, but the scripture makes clear that there was one motive that was abundantly clear, and it was this. He was a lover of money. 
And in his idolatry, he forsook the Son of God for just a little bit more money. You see, if we love, treasure something more than Christ, we too can forsake him for that thing we love more. This woman was willing to sacrifice her most treasured possession in order to treasure Christ. Judas was willing to sacrifice Christ in order to gain his treasured possession of money. You see, in the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who are like this woman, who love and treasure Christ above all else, and those who are like Judas, who will forsake and reject Christ in order to obtain or keep what one loves. Which one describes you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. And we thank you for the example of this woman, this unashamed worshiper of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the memory of her, that we can marvel at her devotion and how Christ responds to her. And we ask, God, that you would give us that same kind of love and devotion towards Jesus that this woman had. That we would not be ashamed, that we would be sincere, that our worship would be sacrificial, and that more than anything else, that Jesus would look upon our worship as beautiful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.